Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicarude, and today I am really pleased and excited to bring on the show a woman that I have known and watched from afar for a very long time, finally get the opportunity to ask a lot of questions of. Cindy Villanueva is a memoirist and inspirational writer with a passion for helping women achieve lives of strength and joy. She's the author of a terrific book called Don't Fight Mad, A Black Belt's Quest to Recapture Joy. And she's the co-author of Finding Our Wings, Seven Entrepreneurs on Reclaiming Hope and Power. Cindy is a seventh degree black belt master instructor and the owner of Ernie Reyes World Martial Arts in Austin, Texas. Her love of teaching led her to become an adjunct professor at Concordia University in Texas, where she teaches undergraduate marketing and graduate marketing management and leadership. She speaks regularly on leadership and women in business. Cindy has four children and two grandchildren, and she splits her time between Austin, Texas and New Smyrna Beach, Florida. She is, in my view, the ultimate badass. So I'm so happy. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Cindy. Oh, what an introduction. Thank you very much. I am so excited. You know, you don't know this, but back when I was a little color belt at West Coast and going to tournaments (laughs) and things and eventually testing for black belt, I used to watch you because, as you know, my master instructor was also one of the women who ran a school, Quadrant Terry Lee, and I always very keen to watch the women who were so far beyond where I was, and I loved watching you, and I have a memory of my fourth degree test in 2012, watching you do your open form, because you were testing also, and just sitting there going, this is so cool, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, (laughs) thank you, well it is delightful to be here. Yeah, it's kind of cool. There's very few women-only owned schools in the association. Yeah, it's definitely a male-oriented industry. It is, and it's really cool to see women, and not just you know young women who are in the prime of their athletic careers, but women who are in you know, their 30s, 40s, 50s, who are still out there, and not just teaching, but leading, and still performing and testing. So it's great, wonderful to see and bravo to you for doing that. Thank you. I want to dig into your martial arts journey in a little bit, but I like yeah. to start our conversations off with some some warm-up questions. So are you ready for those? <laughs> I am. I listened to some of your other podcasts, <laughs> so I know <laughs> something's coming out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> Not too far out of left field, I don't think, today. <laughs> I'm curious, though. I mean, I've read both of the books, the one, the anthology that you were in, and then your book that just came out like a month ago. And I'm curious what book you are currently reading. Oh, gosh, that's a great, there are a few of them sitting by my bedside, actually. (laughs) I am reading a really good nonfiction book right now by Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo called Red Letter Christians. 
So Shane Claiborne wrote a book about the death penalty and how it killed Jesus and how it's killing us. And it was a fascinating book. So that's how I got interested in him. He's a big, you know, social justice pastor. And then Tony Campolo, who of course is, you know, legend in evangelical circles. He's a Presbyterian minister. And the two of them, you know, real young guy and an older guy came together with this book called Red Letter Christians. And it's all about taking the things that Jesus said that are shown up as the red letters and in a lot of Bibles and talking about, wouldn't it be crazy if we actually lived this stuff out, if we actually did it the way that he said it. And, you know, we didn't add on all of this other stuff. So I've been really fascinated reading that book. I will tell you one thing I just finished reading probably within the last month is Adam Grant's new book on Think Again, which is absolutely fantastic. You talk about being a fangirl. I'm a total fangirl of Adam Grant. If you don't follow him, you really ought to. He's fabulous. He is a Wharton professor. His PhD is in organizational psychology. And the book Think Again, I've read a few of his books, but this one is all about basically always thinking about the fact that you don't know everything there is to know. And if you think again, you'll probably make better decisions. And there's always more information to glean. The subtitle of it is The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And I just found it fascinating. I really, really enjoyed that book. Well, both of those that you've mentioned sound really interesting, meaning completely different domains. It sounds like both of them are the kind of books that you don't just sort of sit and speed read through? No, you definitely want to digest them. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So what was the greatest source of joy for you as a child? I would say the greatest source of joy as a child was really just spending time with my family. We were very, very close. So I have one younger brother and it was just the two of us. And, you know, one of the things I actually talk about in the book is my mom had 10 miscarriages. Both my parents came from very large families with six kids each, and they wanted a big family. And my mom had all kinds of health problems and wasn't able to have, the doctor actually told her it was a miracle that she had the two of us. My parents were just really devoted to us. We just did stuff together all the time. And we weren't a wealthy family. We didn't have a lot. And I didn't know it at the time, but we just did things together. We went camping every year. Growing up in Northern California, we always went up to the Redwoods. And we camped, you know, for a week at a time, or we would camp at Santa Cruz, you know, we'd go up for a long weekend and go camping, we go for long drives, we played board games, we just did a lot of stuff together as a family. And when my brother and I started in sports, like I swam competitively for I don't know, a dozen years. And my brother was really into theater. Like we just did everything together. My parents got super involved on the swim team. You know, they were timers and judges. And my mom was, you know, troop leader for Girl Scouts and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They just were super involved. And my brother and I are still, you know, I mean, I'll be 60 in September. He'll be 58 in October. And we're still as close as ever. Oh, that's wonderful. I think your experience of growing up without a lot of monetary wealth, but having a rich family life is one that I can certainly relate to. My dad was a biochem professor, so he was not raking in the big bucks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, my mother also, she had several ectopic pregnancies. Mm. So so a lot of issues with that's why there's 16 years between me and my oldest sister. And there were six years between me and the one in between. 
that we were wow. used to say we we're very spaced out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I really understand that joy of being close to your siblings because I didn't have that so much when I was growing up, mm. but certainly my middle sister died quite a while ago, oh, 2002, no. but my oldest sister and I, you know, we didn't really know each other too much when we were young. You know, yeah. I was, she was graduating high school when I came along. So I was a bit of an embarrassment. Oh my goodness. I bet. <laughs> but, but, you know, now we were very close and relate to each other as adult women and, and mothers and grandmothers now. And it's wonderful to have that bond with a sibling, especially when your parents pass away. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is your greatest source of joy now? <laughs> it's twofold. It's, I would say there's the interior and then exterior. I love to teach. I love to see lives change and I love to be a part of that. So, you know, at the martial arts studio, I mean, I love teaching little kids. I mean, that's great. You know, obviously I have four kids of my own. I love kids, but my real joy is when a woman walks in the door and she's in her thirties and she's never done this before. And she's taking a risk and trying something new because I was 32 when I started martial arts, I wasn't a kid and I love working with women who see their bodies change and their mindset change and their confidence build. I mean, that's just, I just get really lit up about that. I love teaching at Concordia. I will say when I first started teaching, my very first semester of teaching, I was teaching freshman business communications. And I can't lie, I hated it. <laughs> I would, and I thought, I'm just, I'm terrible. I'm not cut out for this. I thought this was my gig and it's not. And then the next semester I taught seniors, I taught an international marketing class for seniors and it was like night and day. And I realized that just like I don't particularly care for teaching the little kids at my studio, I wasn't crazy about teaching the lower classmen either, but I love teaching, you know, red belts and black belts. And I love teaching graduating seniors, you know, people who are a little bit more mature, they know why they're there. They're really invested in their success. I love teaching that group. And then when I started teaching in the MBA program, it was even better because those are adults who come in and they're there for a reason. They're not there. You know, mom and dad aren't financing their education. They're sacrificing. They're there every day for a reason. And I just love that. So the external stuff that I do that brings me joy is really teaching, coaching, mentoring. The internal stuff that brings me joy is taking long walks on the beach. I am so fortunate. My home in New Smyrna Beach, it literally takes me two minutes to walk from my front door to feet in the sand. And when I'm home, I love to get up in the morning as the sun is coming up. And, you know, it took me a little while to get used to the sun coming up in the ocean instead of setting in the ocean because I'm a <laughs> California girl. But boy, I'll tell you, there's just nothing like walking on the beach and seeing that sun come up and just everything is bright with the world, you know, whatever was confusing or sad or wonderful and great, whatever emotions you may be feeling for me, there's something very, very spiritual and very, very special. It's really sacred time for me to walk. And I do it for about 45 minutes, usually four days a week when I'm back home, I'll get up and I go for a nice long power walk. And then I come home and I'm ready to start my day. It's just so restorative. Oh, that's a wonderful way to start the day. 
So it sounds as though the morning walk is part of your self-care routine, really. Very much so. Other than that, what is your favorite self-care practice? Yeah, I love to read. I love to cook. And I just love spending time. I guess I'm more like my mom. You know, I just love spending time with my family. I'm really fortunate that three of the four of the kids are in Florida. So I'm able to spend time with them on a regular basis when I'm back home. My youngest is here in Austin. So when I'm in Austin, I get a chance to spend time with him. But really, yeah, it's just being outdoors, being at the beach, spending time with my kids and my dogs. And I'm pretty easy. <laughs> Nothing special. <laughs> well, those Although are a spa wonderful day is, is always lovely. You know, I throw in a spa day from time to time. Those are always lovely too. Oh, spa days. I remember those. <laughs> That's actually something I was just speaking to my husband about saying, you know, we need to go get a pedicure because that's one of the things that we we first did when we were first starting to go out was go and get a pedicure. And I thought that was How pretty darn fun. brave of him <laughs> to walk into a, you know, a, a little place that was all women. <laughs> that's and awesome. Sit down and stick his feet into the water and get a little love for his feet so been a long time since we've been able to do that with all of the lockdowns and things so I I think that would be fun but I like a good spa day myself with a facial and a (laughs) massage and just yep (laughs) um, indulgence so (laughs) right with you absolutely well what advice would you give to young women in their 20s that you wish you had been given when you were that age Oh my goodness. I would say as soon as you hear or start using the word should, run screaming the other direction. Get rid of the shoulds. It's so easy to think I should go to this school. I should get this degree. I should get this job. I should marry this person. I should have 2.1 kids. I should, should, should you know what, there's no should, there shouldn't be a should, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. everyone is different, figure out who you are. I mean, I talk in the book a lot about, you know, getting in the right ring. You know, if I go to a tournament, I'm not going to enter the heavyweight men's black belt division. We have the same belt, but that's not my ring. That's not where I belong. And we spend too little time figuring out the right ring. And we spend a lot of time in the shoulds. Unfortunately, there's a lot of women who get into their 30s and they're looking around at their lives and they're going, how did I end up here? And you trace it back to, well, I was, I should have done this or I should have done that. If you hear Mm -hmm. that word, turn the other direction, spend, take the time to really deeply evaluate who you are, what brings you joy, not what makes you happy. Happiness is transient. What brings you joy? Find those things and latch onto those things. And those might be different. What brings you joy at 25 may be completely different at 35. And don't be afraid to change. You're going to live for a really long time. Be the person you're designed to be. And that person can change. And that's totally okay. Oh, that's awesome. And it's funny because that is like the perfect transition into my my next question, I, I don't know how you knew to set it up like that, because <laughs> I, mean, I, I love that advice. And I think that a lot of women do end up, you know, at some point, a couple decades in going, wait a minute, this is not yeah. what I was planning. <laughs> yes. And 
you know, the, the first part of your book is really your story. And it's an incredible story about how the life that we think we're going to have <laughs> doesn't turn out to be the life that we actually get and yeah. create. So yeah. can you share a little bit about how you started out and what you thought was going to be your path? <laughs> When I was being raised, my dad came from Mexico. He was actually born in California, like a minute over the border, I think, but he was born in California, but he was raised in Mexico and their family was just, I mean, if you've ever been to like Baja California or any of those places and you see the shanties kind of on the side of the hills with the corrugated tin or the cardboard or where, I mean, like that's how my dad was raised, just abject poverty. And then they would come up to California and they would travel with the crops and they would pick fruits and vegetables. And then they would go back to Mexico and they would come back and forth. And so his schooling was really you know, very abbreviated. He'd go for a little bit, but then they'd have to leave because they were following the crops. And when he was in the eighth grade, his parents said, you know, no mas, <laughs> you don't need any more school. We need you full time in the fields. And so, and my dad loved school, but he had to drop out of school when he was only 13 years old to go and help the family. You know, they had all those kids and they all worked in the fields and then they lived in the camps in central California. So when I was growing up, I was told, I mean, as long as I can remember, education was the single most important thing. Like we were going to go to school. We were going to work hard in school. We we're going to get, you know, a good education. We were going to a good college. And that was just drilled into us. You know, my father ended up getting drafted and went into the army and then was able to use the GI Bill to go to San Jose State. And worked, you know, was working full time to take care of us. He wanted my mom to be a stay at home mom. So my mom was able to take care of us. And my dad worked a lot of jobs and went to school. And so that was just like drilled into me from day one. And so I always was really passionate about school. I loved school and I was great at it. And so I was that stereotypical straight A kid and play, you know, in the summertime, our big thing was I'd play school with my little brother, you know, which is <laughs> I always loved it. And so, you know, when I went into high school, I knew I wanted to go to a good university. So I ended up going off to UCLA and my plan was, I'm going to do a poli-sci degree at UCLA. I'm going to come back to Northern California. I'm going to go to Bolt for law school. Then I'm going to move back to Los Angeles. I'm going to be an attorney. My favorite uncle was attorney in Beverly Hills, and I just idolized him, wanted to be like him. So I was going to move back to LA and, and be an attorney. And then when I was 35, I was going to you know, run for the Senate. And I was going to be a senator from the great state of California. And that was my plan from the time I was 15 was that's exact. I didn't know what college I was going to go to, but that was my plan. I had a whole thing mapped out. And so, you know, I leave for the golden child of my family because, of course, they're, you know, migrant farm workers. And, you know, my grandma, my little abuelita, you know, she thought I was the greatest thing in the world because I'm going off to UCLA and I get pregnant my freshman year in college. And I came home and, you know, instead of being the golden girl, now I'm just a statistic. I am just not at all what I expected. And so I tried really hard after Rebecca was born. I went back to San Jose State and I was working as a secretary during the day and I was trying to go to school at night. And I just, you know, I didn't have the maturity. I didn't have the wherewithal to make all of those things, to juggle all of those things together. And so I dropped out of San Jose State. And then I ended up getting married when she was three. And I had two more kids right away. And 
you know, I always had that stuff rattling around in my head from my dad that, you know, education, education, I'd take classes at the junior college or I'd take classes at, you know, the university, but nothing to put together for a degree. And, you know, then 15 years later, I'm divorced and I have these three kids and, you know, my daughter ended up, I mean, I was 19 when she was born. So she had already left the home, had my two sons at home and, I don't have a degree. I don't have a job. I don't have a place. To li- I mean, I'm literally at loose ends and nothing at all the way that I had envisioned when I was 15 years old, nothing. So how did you figure out what to do? <laughs> you know, it's amazing what you are capable of if you have sort of that North star. And for me, it was my boys. The days when I felt like I just wanted to give up, like I wanted to jump off of a bridge. No, because I had my boys and Mm. I had to figure it out. And I, you know, I had so many people ask me like, oh my gosh, you do so much. How do you do this? Like, how do you not? I mean, I'm looking at these two boys. Who else is going to take up for them? Who else is going to keep a roof over their head? Who else is going to educate them? Who else is going to love them like this? I don't have a choice. I don't have the luxury of falling apart. And so, you know, you just put one foot in front of the other and you just keep Mm -hmm. going. And thankfully, by doing that, you know, I was able to build up a little bit of momentum and through, you know, a series of very fortunate things. And, and, you know, and I'm a woman of faith. And so I have to believe that there was a lot of God stuff, (laughs) you know, that came through on days when I felt like I couldn't pick my chin up that I felt like, Mm -hmm. you know, he was there saying, come on, Cindy, you can do this. And so I was able to, you know, find a job. And at one point we were living in a little condo that was a friend of a friend's and she needed somebody to house sit for three months. And I had no idea what we were going to do after that three months was up, but at least I had a roof over our heads and, you know, I was working very hard to make ends meet. And, you know, my ex-husband didn't want to pay child support. And so, you know, we were arguing about that. I don't need to sound like, you know, Mother Teresa. I mean, there's single moms all over the planet who are, you know, just grinding it out. You just do it. I can relate to that. I had a lot of times, uh, even though I was married, I was separated mm. for more than a decade. I had some financial support, obviously, but everything else was on me. And I felt like I couldn't work because it was so much work taking care, not just of my children, but I also had my mother who yeah. was very elderly. So I, I was like the poster girl for the sandwich generation. Oh my. Um, you know, I know exactly what you mean by there really isn't any choice. And that motivation of having other people who are dependent on you and just knowing that if you're not there, like all that's going to fall apart. That's really what keeps you going. And it's funny because that's really now when I teach self-defense and I talk with women about, you know, finding their personal reason to survive a situation and to make it through and to take action, Mm. it all comes back to that reason why. So, well, so how did you get into martial arts then? (laughs) because of the kids. So in 1994, (laughs) so a lot of your listeners weren't born yet. My daughter was 13 and she got into this dumb little girl pushing fight at school. And my parents flipped out and they said, oh my gosh, the kids have to know how to protect themselves. Find a good martial arts school. We'll pay for the first year. 
So I started looking around and I was there in San Jose looking around at different schools. And of course, you know, there's a karate school on every corner and like, how do you know? But I started looking into it and I found West Coast and the Blossom Hill School where Quentinum Hector, who you know mm-hmm. well, was there. He was a Sabinim at the time. He was a third degree black belt. But I just loved the way that West Coast approached martial arts, that it wasn't just about kicking and punching, that it was about self-discipline and respect and tradition and leadership. Um, All of those things kind of coalesced for me. And so I put all three of the kids into classes. So Alex was eight, Jamie was 10, James was 10, and Rebecca was 13. And I would sit on the side and I would watch the kids with all the moms and, you know, watch the kids. But then we'd go home and move the furniture around. I'd say, okay, now show me how to do this and show me. So we would practice. I knew all the curriculum, like up to green belt, I think, before I ever started. But then we went when the kids were like, I think they were like purple belts. So just sort of in the intermediate stages. And we went and we watched a black belt test. And I saw other women in their 30s testing for black belt. And I thought, you know what? I've been an athlete all my life. I'm going to do it. And so the following week I signed up and, you know, never in a million years thinking, oh, I'm going to be a black belt or I'm going to own a school or anything ridiculous like that. It was just really something to do with my kids. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was 27 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so funny because that parallels very closely what I did. You know, I was also you know, it was the child, the children yeah. that, that got me into it. And I sat on the benches and watched the little Mighty Mites class at the West oh. Coast in Sunnyvale. That's and, awesome. Um, you know, sat there and watched everything and would go home and you know, run through everything with my son, <laughs> Alex, so he could get ready for his, you know, his white belt test and his orange belt test. And my, I started two weeks after I had my third child, my daughter, Katie. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Yep. And then kept going all the way through my pregnancy with Ben. He was born the day after we did board breaking and kicking combinations. Oh my goodness. That's awesome. Oh my goodness. That's badass. We have have a really funny picture of me doing a kicking combination and I've got my uniform on and my belt, you know, is like halfway up my stomach because I was huge. And the instructor for the noontime classes was Sabin Empress Luera, who you Mm -hmm. probably know well. And he was studying to be an EMT at the time. And I was going to play a nasty joke on him and bring in like a little baggie of water and just accidentally (gasps) dribble some water on the floor. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I don't know if he would have forgiven me for doing that. And I didn't (laughs) actually have my child on the mat, but I actually, I had been and then was right back to training right at the beginning of January. So like a week after. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But I know what you mean by sitting there and watching and then going, well, I kind of like to do that. Yeah. That looks like fun. And it's a very different experience to be on the mat yourself. Oh, yeah. Versus watching. Absolutely. Yeah, it looks very easy when you're just watching. (laughs) So true. (laughs) That's great. I love that. So now you are a seventh degree black belt. Yeah. And have your own school and teach you know, you have a program that covers everything. Like what's the youngest age now? And we start classes? at four. Yeah. The little dragons start at four. 
That's crazy. My little daughter, Charlotte, pulled a fast one on me when she was three because Alex, you know, big brother was going and then I started and she was like, mommy, mommy, I want to do it too. And I (laughs) said, you know, we'll just, we'll do an intro. And if they say it's okay, you can go ahead. And I had full confidence that because she was only three, that they would say, well, you know, she can come back next year and she'll be ready. And instead, you know, they're like, wow, best intro we've ever given to a child. She can jump into Mighty Mites now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so as small as those four-year-olds are that you have in your school, she was even smaller. She was oh, my teeny weeny. But yeah, it is interesting to see children that age because they're not fully in their bodies yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, true. so so what are some of the things that you've noticed in the progression for girls and for boys? Do you notice any differences in how they experience the curriculum, especially the physical aspect of it? I think the mental part probably isn't too terribly different in learning the mm-hmm. life skills and the things right. you were talking about, the discipline and the respect and that kind of thing. But do you, have you noticed any difference with the physical part between the girls and the boys? (laughs) You know, I write about this in the book. There's a section called Get Comfortable with Punches. And I tell the story of these two girls who started with me when they were, they were very young. They were in elementary school. Both of are graduated from college now and are, you know, one of them's a fourth degree, one's of them a second degree black belt. When they were very young, they came and really took to it, loved martial arts. And when they got to the stage that they were ready to start sparring, you know, I'm talking to their dad about getting them their gear and everything. They're so excited to pick out their gear and they pick out all pink. It's hilarious. You know, the head, nice. the foot gear, the hand, everything's <laughs> pink, but these are two tough little girls. And dad is just stressed out about this. And he's saying, you know, Cindy, could they get hurt? Like, could they get hit in the face? And I'm going, well, yeah, it's martial arts. I mean, you know, what do you, what do you expect? But, you know, they have all the gear on, they have chest protectors, they have face shields. There's two black belts standing around at every ring, making sure they're safe. You know, we're going to protect them. They're going to be fine. But he would come to every sparring match because he was so nervous to, you know, that they were going to get hurt and they were so excited. So they get out there and start sparring. And what I start seeing is that they have no problem taking a punch. They're getting kicked, they're getting punched, whatever. They're coming right back. But then every time they would score a point, they would apologize. So, you know, a little girl, they're fighting and whatever. Maybe she's fighting a boy because at my school, the girls and boys fight together. She throws a punch and hits the kid. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm going, wait, what is going on here now? We're not going to be doing this. And so I started paying closer attention and I found it was the girl's like all the girls are apologizing for hitting. And so I realized, you know, we're just not socialized that way where, you know, a boy maybe, and and this is a gross generalization. So, you know, for those of your listeners who grew up with brothers or who were more tomboyish, please, this is a gross generalization, but in general, girls are not socialized to be that physical. So where boys maybe are, you know, wrestling or play fighting or whatever, girls are not necessarily social to do that. And so when they get the chance to do it, they're a little bit uncomfortable throwing the punches. So I had to sit down with the girls and say, Hey, look, here's the deal. 
nobody's going to win a sparring match by just being defensive. You have to score points, which means you have to hit. So it's okay to do that. Secondly, there may be a time on the parking lot when something happens and you have to use this stuff. I don't want you apologizing to the bad guy. So here's what you can do. If you feel like you hit too hard, which sometimes happens, you can call time and you can look at your opponent and say, are you okay? That's allowed. I don't want to hear the word I'm sorry on the mat. And so I gave them a couple of weeks to kind of get used to it. And they were still apologizing. So then I said, okay, we're not doing this. If I hear you say the word, I'm sorry, I'm going to call time and you're going to do 10 pushups. The second infraction, it's going to be 20 pushups. <laughs> and so I just had to really kind of get it out of them to recognize that, you know, there are times when it's appropriate to throw a punch. And there's a great metaphor there because there are times in life when you just got to fight back. And it's okay. And you don't have to feel guilty about it. And you don't have to apologize for it. You know, I'm not talking about being inappropriate. I'm not talking about being a bully. And I'm not talking about using a bazooka when, you know, a fly swatter will work. But I am saying there are times when fighting back is absolutely appropriate. And as women, we have to get out of the habit of feeling guilty and apologetic. Well, it's funny because, I mean, still even adult women in conversations, in work environments and things like that will apologize before they speak. You know, like, I'm sorry, but I want to say blah, 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 blah. And so that whole concept of actually owning our space and having a voice and, you know, being present and visible is very uncomfortable, even for adult women nowadays, you know, never mind actually taking physical action. So I think that you know, breaking through that barrier, that mental barrier that says that it's not okay to do that. And I don't have to apologize if I do. It's huge. Yeah, absolutely. It also, one of the things that that sort of sparks in my mind is that we're socialized to think that all violence is bad. Yes. And it's really, it belongs to the people who are bad people. That means we don't allow ourselves to tap into being violent when we need to. And the reality is all human beings are born with the capacity of violence, just like we're born with the abilities to protect ourselves. Yes. But if we hamstring ourselves by saying, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't hit somebody. I can't hurt somebody. I can't injure somebody. I mean, we're really, we are disempowering ourselves and we're making it so much easier for people who have no qualms whatsoever. Right. In, using violence as a tool you know, we're just handing all the power over to them so I think exactly. that work that you were doing with those girls you know yes it is definitely relevant in martial arts context on the mat and my golly how that transfers into life skills in general exactly and you know it's interesting too that's really was the genesis of this book about don't fight mad you know is using martial arts really as a metaphor for life you don't have to be a martial artist to read this book it's applicable because it is a great metaphor so many experiences in our life it is as i was reading the book i mean number 1 i love the personal story but number 2 i absolutely love that framework of looking at things through the lens of martial arts i think i would love it even if i didn't have such a long history in martial arts myself yeah because it just makes so much sense and you articulate it so well so i just want to like send a ringing endorsement to everybody listening Aww. like 
just go get it because, <laughs> you know, you'll be inspired, but you also get these amazing tools. And you have a journal too. I just discovered you have a journal I that do. goes with it. Yeah. So, you know, many ways to really do some of the inner work that it takes in order to create the life that you want. Yes. Well, so one other thing that we don't tend to learn as children is how to set healthy boundaries and how to maintain them. So what are your thoughts on boundaries and how you teach women to deal with them? Yeah, that's such a good question. Boundaries to me are absolutely huge. And we talk a lot about, you know, when we think about boundaries and we think about martial arts or we think about self-defense or whatever, we think about, you know, don't touch me or you have a right not to be touched here or any of that sort of thing. But I think we have to get beyond that cursory framework of our physicality and think about boundaries in general, like don't transcend this boundary. And what do I mean by that? I was talking to a group of paralegals the other day. I did a webinar for a group of paralegals and we were talking specifically about that chapter about getting comfortable with punches. And one of the things that I do with my clients and one of the things I did with them was take them through an exercise where you write out a series of statements starting with something that's utterly innocuous that you can say all day without batting an eye. The first one I always use is, hi, my name is Cindy. I have green eyes. There's no emotional attachment to that. It's just a statement. And then you write a series of no more than 10, no fewer than five. The one I like to use has nine statements in it. And you go through each statement gets progressively more difficult to say because you're setting a boundary and each one becomes more and more difficult. My last one on the nine statements, and these are business oriented, is your behavior has made it impossible for me to work with you. This is our last meeting. I'll make sure and have my invoice to you this afternoon. End of story. And everything, you know, gets progressively more difficult from the green eyes comment all the way down to that. But the point is when I say that sentence You don't hear anger in my voice. You don't hear emotion. You don't hear anything that somebody can write you off as being a hysterical woman. I'm saying it in exactly the same way. I'm telling you what my name and and my eye color is. We have to get to the point where we realize that we have the right to speak truth and we don't have to apologize for it. We don't have to get scared about it. It's we're not doing anything wrong when we speak truth. And so I use this exercise and what I have them do is write out the sentences and then get with somebody you trust, somebody you feel comfortable with and look them in the eye and say those sentences. And when you get to the point where you start kind of looking around or you start fidgeting or you start, you know, your heart starts beating a little bit faster, that's the point at which you know you're stuck. And you need to sort of desensitize yourself to that point. So you need to practice those sentences until you can say them. Because a lot of times what happens when we first start exercising boundaries, when we first start saying, you know what, I'm sorry, I don't accept you speaking to me that way. We're going to put this on hold until you can talk to me in a professional way. Thank you. Click. You know, when we start exercising those kinds of boundaries, Frequently, we feel guilty. We feel like frightened that, you know, we're going to lose a job. We're going to lose a relationship. Something bad is going to happen. I really say over and over, much of life is just a math problem, right? You know what you know. You know what you don't know. Find the variables. Solve for the variables. It's very factual. So if I say to you, I'm sorry, 
this conversation is not going anywhere. You clearly are very upset. I'm happy to have this conversation with you when we can have a rational discussion. So you let me know when you're ready to talk to me in a professional way. Thank you. Click. I'm not saying, hey, you're a jerk. I'm never speaking to you again. I'm not doing any of that. I'm speaking truth and light into this situation. What is the situation? What do I know? I know that there's a problem that needs to be solved. I know that I have some of the answers. You have some of the answers, but we're not getting to those answers because you are not approaching me in a professional, appropriate manner. So the variable is when is that going to happen? I don't know. We're going to solve for that variable. And only you can do that because you have to come back to me with a plan to speak to me in in a rational way. And so if you break it down in that respect, then you can kind of own the truth. Now you can just speak, you know, like I said, it's a math problem. It becomes very, very fact oriented. And you think about what is the outcome I'm looking for here? Well, the outcome for this is that we're able to have a meeting of the minds. Perhaps we're going to disagree on, you know, whatever it is we're discussing, but we can do that without being disagreeable. We can continue in this relationship, whether it's a personal or a professional relationship. Maybe that's the outcome that I'm looking for. I'm always looking for to have an outcome orientation to these conversations. But if you get to the point where it simply can't happen, then you have to know when to bail. And you have to be able to do that without pitching a fit. Because what's the one thing that people always are going to, men in particular, who are going to look at a woman who stomps her foot, screams, throws things, whatever. It's like, oh, brother, you know, stereotypical woman, you know, emotional, out of control, unreliable. Well, I refuse to be written off that way. If I'm going to tell you off in this tone of voice, and it's going to be very fact-based, it's not going to be ad hominem attacks. I'm going to tell you what you did. I'm going to tell you what the consequences are, and then we're going to call it good. And so that's something that we can do that goes well beyond setting boundaries of, you know, don't touch me, even little things like, you know, tickling a little kid when the little child is not liking it, doesn't want it. And as adults, we go, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that funny? No, that's not funny. Don't do that. Don't impose your will on someone who can't fight back. So from the very early stages, we look at the physicality of it, and that's important, but we need to broaden our view of what boundaries encompass, and it's how we're spoken to, it's how we're addressed, it's how we're treated in meetings, it's everything about life. It is even about our financial environments, and it's about yes. our commitments, and it's about our time and our resources as well, and I think Absolutely. one of the big mistakes we make is we tend to think of boundaries as being negotiations and <laughs> they're not, you know, if it's a boundary, so it's what you're talking about. It's a fact, it's a fixed thing. And it's not something that we're negotiating about. It's true. I mean, this is a, a crazy example, but let's say somebody comes up and says, Hey, you know, I'd like to reach in and touch your liver. Well, you don't get to do that. There's a boundary there. My skin is there. My bones are there. You can't reach in and just touch my liver. There's a boundary that we know that is can't be superseded unless you do violence to me. We need to see other boundaries in the same way. You're right. It's not a negotiation. You don't get to demean me in a meeting in front of my colleagues. You don't get to do that. 
If that happens, then I have the right to say, you know what, I don't appreciate the way you've just spoken to me. And I don't accept that. And then stop talking. You don't have yeah. to fill the gap because you've simply spoken truth and light into a situation. And now the onus is where it should go. The accountability is laying on the person on where it should go. It's not laying on you. Now you're not sitting there feeling stupid and uncomfortable because somebody has just dressed you down in the middle of a meeting and talked to you inappropriately. And now you're squirming because you feel embarrassed or stupid or whatever. No, you take that power back and you put it right back. You put the onus on the person where it lies. I'm sorry. I don't accept you speaking to me that way. I love that. It really does put the ball back into the hands of the person that you're dealing yes. with rather than you feeling like you have to solve it all. And I think that, I mean, you actually articulated this. One of the things that keeps us from being willing to maintain our boundaries, you know, to set them, to hold them and to apply consequences is fear. You know, it's yes. like, well, if I do this, like, what if I lose the relationship? You know, what if my marriage goes south? You know, what if it's fear? Mm -hmm. So yeah. how do you navigate through fear? And what do you teach about relationship with fear? Yeah, that's a great question too. I mean, we all have it. You can't get away from it. I would say that, you know, I don't live a fearless life. Sure, there's things that I am fearful of. You know, you are fearful of losing relationships or losing a business or losing a job or something like that. But I think that you have to look at what is the, the upside to facing that fear, embracing that fear, and embracing your power versus capitulating to that fear. Because then what are you? Then who are you? And every morning, you got to wake up and know that you are less than you could have been. You are less than you should be. You're less than you're designed to be and are capable of being. And who wants to live that life? I don't want to live that life. I'll tell you at almost 60, you know, I lived that life for too long. I have no interest in living a life based on fear. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. And it's interesting because when I work with women and we're, we're talking about fear, you know, one of the things that we do is kind of like you were talking about the calculus. It's like, what is the benefit of putting this boundary and dealing with the consequence, like what's the upside? And yeah. the flip side of that is like, what can it cost you if you don't take action? Like, What will it cost you if you just go along with this or you comply or you let this slide and yeah. you don't protect your heart, your financial resources, your home, your relationship? Like, what is the cost to you if you don't take action? Because we often let the specter of fear really mm -hmm. define the entire picture, that's not the whole thing. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about is if you let something slide, if you let somebody transgress a boundary and you don't do anything about it and do that out of fear, then you do wake up the next morning feeling diminished. Absolutely. And, you know, add that up day after day after day, experience after experience. And it's no wonder that we end up feeling worthless and invisible mm -hmm. and hopeless. So yes. figuring out what it can cost you if, if you don't take a stand and you don't develop the skills that will help you, like you're talking about your little framework there is very simple, but very potent. Yeah. And like, what does it cost you to learn how to do that and try it out in some you know, small ways to start mm -hmm. to build the skill so that when you do have a bigger issue to deal with, 
you have some confidence and a little bit, you know, you've started to build those pathways in your brain that like, this is how we can handle this, right? Yes. Well, I'll tell you the other day when I did this webinar for these paralegals, I got a note the next day from a woman who said she had listened. Uh, She had been in the webinar. And then the next day she had had a situation where she had, she used what she learned. She told a man to stop talking until he could calm down and then they could resume the conversation. And she said it worked like a charm. The look on his face was priceless. Thank you for the empowerment. And this is just so brilliant because now she will be that much more capable the next time that happens. Yes, that's awesome. (laughs) That's terrific. Well, so you've experienced domestic abuse as well as emotional betrayal, infidelity, financial deception, and a whole lot more in, you know, in your marriages and in your work life. What do you think we should be teaching girls and young women about relationships and about warning signs, like how to recognize that what you're in is not necessarily healthy and is going in a direction that could end up really bad? What should we be teaching them about that and about what to do when they realize that the relationship is somewhat troubled? Well, I think we neglect our intuition far too often. There is often something that is a trigger, something that you just instinctively know that's not quite right. But then you immediately go to, oh, well, that can't be what it was. Or, you know, I must have misread that. Or I'm sure he couldn't have done that. Or, you know, we come up with a million excuses to deny what we know some, you know, at a deep, deep level for a variety of reasons, you know, we can be taken completely by surprise. You know, we thought we knew somebody, a business partner, a spouse, you know, whatever, some, a friend, we thought we knew that person and something comes along that gives you a glimmer that maybe all is not as you thought it was. And our first reaction far too often, instead of saying, hmm, that's something I need to look into more, our first reaction is, oh, I must be wrong. And that's born of either fear that, okay, if, if this is right and I push forward, I'm going to lose this relationship or I'm going to you know, lose my business or something catastrophic is going to happen. Or we just lack the confidence that in our own sense of what's right and what's wrong. I would say, trust your intuition. Now that doesn't mean, you know, constantly being suspicious and, you know, checking out every little perceived transgression. But if you start seeing something that just doesn't feel right, by all means, you need to ask. You need to be bold. You need to make, you need to not be super accusatory or make a big scene about it, but you need to just say, hey, look, this is what I saw. This didn't feel right. Can you explain this? Now, If you're in a situation like I was with my second husband, who is a classic narcissist and who is probably a borderline psychopath, you know, I would have gotten completely gaslighted and walked away feeling like, you know, I had done a terrible thing by accusing him of something and then it was all on me. But people need to be confronted by their misdeeds, I believe. And when we just let them go, it's, it's the same, you know, what we're talking about boundaries, you know, it just makes it easier the next time. And after a while, you start to know, you know what, <laughs> I'm absolutely right. 
And now not only are you in the situation where bad things are happening, but now you have that diminishment of self. Now you are, at least I know for me, I felt so stupid. Like here I am a grown woman. I have, you know, two degrees. I'm a success. How on earth did I fall for this? And so then in addition to having the reticence to, you know, confronting the embezzlement, the adultery, the, you know, whatever, then in addition, there's that self abasement of just how could I be so stupid? I'm such an idiot. And, you know, you go through all of that kind of stuff. So I would say, you know, tackle stuff soon, go ugly early if you have to, but ask the questions, get the answers. And if you feel like you're being really gaslighted, then you need to do the forensics yourself. I mean, I will say I almost lost my studio because of financial misdealings by my ex-husband, who was my business partner. And here I'm the one with the MBA, but I'm not following up. I'm not checking into all this stuff because his, the way we had our life situated was I worked full time and I was financially responsible for our family. He ran the school and I should have been more involved. I had the ability, the skills, the education, and I didn't. And as a result, you know, it took us a few years after we were divorced for me to get this place back on stable footing and to get it back in the black and pay back all the money and pay the back taxes and all of the stuff that, you know, we were in absolute catastrophe over the way he had run the school. So looking back on it, I wish that I had had the courage to say, you know what, this doesn't feel right. And if he did gaslight me, then to do the forensics myself. I mean, I have access to the bank accounts. I have access to the data to go and either prove myself right or prove myself wrong and then be able to take, make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. Well, you hit on like several really important pieces, you know, just in, in that whole response. I, I'm nodding along back here. Just like, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, you know, one thing was this intuition. And one of the things that we know is that people who have experienced bad things pretty much unanimously will tell you that they had a bad feeling about yes. it. And, yes. you know, we are super good at coming up with all kinds yeah. of rationalizations and reasons why it couldn't possibly be true. You said there are some good reasons for that. You know, part of it's even just how our brains work, that, you know, our social brain or the monkey brain, as Rory Miller calls it, mm -hmm. that is something where like we want to be part of a tribe. We want to be affiliated with somebody. And right. even if things are not feeling very good, it feels safer to stay there than it does to do something that might cause us to be, quote, outcast from that tribe. Right. That's something that keeps us stuck in bad situations quite often. Yeah. But another thing though is that often the person that we're dealing with is an expert manipulator and dissembler yes. and they take advantage of our trust to do what yeah. they want to do. And because we're not like that, it makes it very hard to credit that somebody else could be like that. Absolutely. You're exactly right. <laughs> I mean, I, I have experience with that. <laughs> I and hear that in your voice. I can I, tell. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not just theorizing. I think sometimes we don't even recognize that people can operate like that until we've had a really negative experience with somebody that sort of rips the scales from our eyes and says, yeah. look, 
you know, really see what's in front of you. You know, I think the only other thing I'd like to add is just that when you are in a relationship like this and you do start to get this feeling that maybe things are not quite right, you know, yes, you can definitely do what you're talking about and do some forensic exploration yourself. But now there's organizations, there are some great people who can help you and say, you know, no, you are not a crazy woman and you're not the first person this has ever happened to. Like, this is a very common thing. And I know there's one of my friends and great connections that in Silicon Valley, Ruth Van Darlene, she runs Women SD, which is a support organization for women who are in situations of domestic abuse with some Mm. of Silicon Valley's big muckety-mucks. So the super powerful in Silicon Valley. And I think the most common thing that I've heard in the support groups there was, I thought I was all alone. I thought it was yes. Um, no, you're absolutely so right. That you, you're there not are resources. Absolutely. There are resources. You have to get help. You can't do it by yourself. Yeah. And you should have support. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Your book is not just your personal story. It's a terrific guide to figuring out your life and how to find joy. And I'm curious why you know, you've got several sections in the book, but you chose mm-hmm. one of them in particular for the title. So why did you call it? don't fight mad. Like what's the story (laughs) behind that? Yeah. So when I was a blue belt, so this is, you know, been 25 years ago, I was sparring and I was extremely competitive. And whenever I would, somebody would score a point on me, I would get so angry and I wouldn't get angry at them. I'd get angry at me. And so then I would just say, ah, I'm just going to fight harder. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to throw down. I'm just going to go faster and harder. And, and I had an instructor who was a third degree black belt at the time, Sabinam Scott. And he stopped me one time and he said, Cindy, don't fight mad. When you fight mad, you don't see what's coming and you miss opportunities. And that has never left me because talk about a metaphor for life. You know, it's not just a matter of being angry. If you are acting out of all those negative emotions, whether it's bitterness or resentment or jealousy or fear or any of that kind of stuff, you do, you don't see what's coming and you miss opportunities. And so It's really important that one of the things I talk about in the book is having a lack of forgiveness. And I love the old story, and I'm sure all your listeners have heard it, but you know, that when you fail to forgive somebody, it's like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. It's not successful. It doesn't do you any good at all. And it doesn't hurt the other person. So for me, it's really important to release people from that judgment, it's, you know, between them and God, (laughs) I don't have to have anything to do with them that, you know, forgiving somebody for me does not mean reconciliation. You know, it, it can mean that, but it doesn't have to mean reconciliation. It just means that I free myself from the bondage of that hatred. And so any of those kind of negative emotions that are driving behavior, driving decisions, we are missing opportunities and we are missing, we're not seeing what's coming at us. And so if we're able to avoid what I'm terming, don't fight mad, we're able to make better decisions and really take control of our lives and find that joy because there's no joy in fighting mad. No, and I love that perspective and you know, tying it into the self-defense realm. And you know, that's one of the things 
where you're talking about when you quote fight mad, you don't see what's coming and you don't make great decisions. You're everything's coming out of that emotion. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that Tony Blower talks about is tapping into your sense of indignation, you know, oh, hell no, you don't, you're not going to get away with that, which is very different from being angry. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's justice based. Yes. Yep. It's really kind of the key that unlocks your power. If you start to feel indignant about something, you want to do something Mm -hmm. and you want to do something effective. You don't just want to lash out, you know, spew all over the place, which is not going to do anything. And also, I mean, you fight mad, all your energy goes in a whoosh. Very hard to sustain that. That's a great point. So tie that back into why you're fighting in the first place. Like, you know, whether it's a physical fight or, you know, a fight to keep your studio open or to prevent another injustice, or even you're being a courageous bystander on behalf of somebody else, like understanding yes. like why you're in it and why it matters that you take action, I think is really, really helpful. And it can balance out that desire to want to fight mad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Well, well, we have been talking for well over an hour. And, <laughs> you know, I could actually, I have more questions, but I don't want to go on forever and ever in this interview. <laughs> so maybe I can have you come back for right. round two. That would be, be awesome. But I do have a couple more questions before we wrap up. Yes. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? That's such a great question. I think you have to, it starts in your head. And if you haven't been raised with anybody telling you how absolutely fabulous and special you are, you're going to have to start telling yourself that. We have to believe absolutely fundamentally in the intrinsic value of ourselves, that there is nobody else on the planet who is you. And that you are here for a reason and that whether that is something very small or something, you know, gigantic, there's nobody else who's going to do that but you. And that when you huddle in fear or in a lack of confidence or a lack of power, not only do you rob yourself of a beautiful life, you rob the rest of us of whatever it is that you were supposed to bring to this planet. And so I think that it starts in your head. The second thing is then start figuring out what it is that you need. What are the tools that you need to be your most powerful self? So for some of us, yeah, it meant, you know, strapping on gloves and getting on the mat and getting a black belt. For somebody, maybe it's, you know, taking a pottery class. It's going and getting a PhD. It's, you know, whatever. Think of whatever it is, the tools that you need to be absolutely the best whoever you are. For some of us, you know, we're just like so tightly wound. The thing that you need is something to help you chill out. You know, go take a yoga class, go take a painting class, go take a week off and spend it at the beach, you know, figure out what the tools are that you need. Take a self-defense class, get involved with Cynthia's program so that you learn how to take care of yourself. Find whatever tools you need to feel and to really recognize and acknowledge the power and the specialness and the uniqueness of who you are. And then I would say, find like-minded people. 
you know, find other people who are not going to put you down, who are not going to second guess you and not necessarily somebody who's just going to automatically think you're fabulous and great and everything you do is right. But find people who are going to be supportive of you, who are going to encourage you. And, you know, those can be other women, they can be men, they can be your folks at your job, they can be folks if you're, you know, on the mat at your martial arts studio, whatever it is, but you need to find people who are going to be there for you, who are going to lift you up when you fall down. You know, one of the things that I share in the book is a story in the Old Testament where the Israelites were fighting and they were, and Moses was standing on a hillside and he was watching. And as long as he held his staff up, the Israelites were winning the fight, but he would get tired and his arm would drop. And, you know, for all of us in the middle of a fight, whatever it is with life, we get tired, but he had Aaron and her who were next to him and they brought over a rock for him to sit on and they held up his arms so that when he grew too tired to hold his staff, they were able to hold his arms up for us. We all need people to do that for us. And we need to do that for other people. So, you know, we come into this world by ourselves, but we're not designed to be alone throughout this. Find people who you trust, who you can hold up, who can hold you up and create those relationships. And they don't have to be, you know, marriage relationships or intimate relationships. They can be friendships and people in your life for a short amount of time and then who are no longer there. But find those people who you can support and who can support you because that's how we get through this that's how we keep our arms held up that's how we win the fight is it okay if I just stand up and cheer (laughs) (laughs) I can't claim credit for that that's straight out of the bible (laughs) oh but the way that you articulated that is just awesome and just really very much from the heart and right on I just I love it definitely over here just cheering and saying, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) This is great. And because it's not just about finding your own power and courage, it's about lifting up other people and helping them with theirs. So I love that. Well, Cindy, it has been so much fun. Just been a great conversation. And I'm so thrilled that we were able to get together to do this. Before we wrap up, can you share how our listeners can find you? And I think you mentioned that you might have a gift for them. I do. So if you will go to cindyvianueva.com and register on my website, I'm giving away a copy of the book and a copy of the journal. And so it will be random drawing later this week. I'll give you the rest of the week to sign up. So probably on Monday, I'll do that drawing and I will send out a signed copy of the book with the journal. So cindyvianueva.com. I'm sure you'll see that in the show notes. You can also also find me on Facebook, Cindy Villanueva author. You can find me on Instagram as well, C Villanueva author. So I'd love to keep in touch. And, you know, if you've got a story that after you read the book and that where you're getting back in the ring and you're learning how not to fight mad, I'm always keen to hear from, from readers to hear how maybe that message has resonated with you. So I'd love to keep in touch. That's awesome. And yes, I will have all of your contact info and everything in the show notes just thank you from the bottom of my heart Cindy this has been absolutely absolutely my pleasure this was really a delight thank you so much well this is the born to be a badass podcast stay safe and be a badass 
You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass. Thank you.